Well, the way to go forward is instead of trying to extract all this money and then shove it back in there in the ways that you think, you should create business plans that don't require this scorched earth extraction to begin with. You know, if you didn't bankrupt these places to start, you wouldn't have to then figure out how to fix them, how to fix them now. And the long-term solutions for these places are not going to be capital infusions anyway. It's going to be, you know, them being able to, to build from the bottom up in a way that's unencumbered by, you know, the Western corporations that are still, you know, trying to uh, extract what value there is. I want to take a quick time out to give you guys a personal update. Many of you know I've been working on my dream of becoming a sci-fi author. Well, now I've got a couple sci-fi books and techno thrillers coming out soon. Do you want to help me and join my advanced beta reader team and get free or deeply discounted copies of my upcoming books to review and help me improve the stories? If you're a fan of Michael Crichton, Daniel Suarez, a good dystopian, or epic fantasy, you'll love my writing. If you join and share your feedback, it would mean the world for me and my writing career. Seriously, I'd really appreciate it. If you visit mattward.io slash book and enter your details, then you'll be notified and occasionally selected to pre-read some of my books before everyone else. Share your thoughts, work directly with me to help me make the story better, and much more. I want to give you guys an epic thanks for listening to the podcast, especially for folks interested in the books. And again, if you want to get my books before they come out before anyone and help me make this writing career a success, please visit mattward.io slash book to join and get your free early copies. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. If tech billionaires came to you asking New Zealand or Alaska, would you know what they meant? Would you realize they were asking where to put their apocalypse bunkers? If that seems audacious and crazy to you, it should. But you know what? This happened. This happened to our guest, Douglas Ruskoff. He's an author, teacher, and documentarian who studies human autonomy in the digital age. He's been named one of the 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT, and his work explores how technological environments change our relationship and narrative to money, power. He coined concepts like viral media, social currency, and has been one of the leading authors and thought leaders when it comes to digital media. He's the author of 20 books, including bestsellers, Present Shock, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, Program or Be Programmed, Life Incorporated, and he's releasing a book and runs a podcast, Team Human, where he interviews world leaders. He's written or hosted three award-winning PBS documentaries, been interviewed on Larry King, The Colbert Report, Bill Mahar, and is a research fellow at the Institute for the Future and a founder of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at SUNY Queens. In today's episode, we'll discuss the real reason billionaires are planning for the inevitable apocalypse and why that's a big problem, how broken the U.S. political system is and how we can fix it, which tech giants are going to get broken up and which will reign supreme, why people are pushing so hard against tech and how it impacts our world, what the Google walkout means for the future of tech, and the reason Douglas is very worried about growing inequality. 
I'm sure that you guys are going to like this episode. And before we jump into it with Douglas, here's the part of the episode where I ask you guys for your support. If you like what we're doing here at The Disruptors, consider supporting us. Right now, we're independent media. We're bringing this to you guys. And we don't have funding. We don't want to have to run advertisements. We don't want to have to try to sell you mattresses because that's not the type of people that we want to be. We want you to know that our integrity is key to everything that we're bringing to you guys. You know, this is coming from us. It's not coming from someone else. We're not worried about what we have to say. We're not worried about some advertiser pulling their advertising spots. We want to be beholden to our listeners only. And we need your help to do that. Right now, we have some supporters on Patreon, but it's not enough to make this sustainable. If you want to help us make this sustainable, please consider supporting us. Disruptors.fm slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N for more details. If you support us at a level of $5 or more per month, you will unlock bonus episodes. We try to put those out weekly, and if not weekly, then every other week, so that you guys can have more of the disruptors, which if you're listening to this, you must enjoy at least enough to put up with my terrible, terrible tunes and terrible voice, etc. Now, if you can't support us economically, that's perfectly fine. We completely understand. Consider sharing this with a friend. If you tell somebody about it, if you tweet it, if you share it on Facebook, heck, if you've got great guest suggestions, anything that you can do to help further our mission, further our cause, and help us reach more people, that's what's needed to make this sustainable. Because right now, we're funding this 100% ourselves. We don't have outside investment. We don't have advertisers. You might want us to do that, but a lot of people don't realize what advertising means for the world. They don't realize what some of these perverse incentives do. Will we do advertising if we have to do it in the future? Yes, we will consider it, but it's something that we want to be able to avoid so that we can be honest and transparent with you guys. If you support that mission, if you support the work that we do, consider supporting us. Disruptors.fm slash Patreon. And now, let's get on with the program. Without further ado, I give you Douglas Rushkoff. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Speaking of which, I want to jump right into this. And my first question, the most important thing, New Zealand or Alaska? I heard you talking about it before. So let's jump straight to that. Well, it depends on your goals. <laughs> I mean, I'm not really, you know, I'm not really as good an expert in climate change as I should be to know how to advise billionaires on where to build their shelters. If I were going to go somewhere today, I'd certainly rather move to New Zealand than Alaska. There's like friendly people there. There's no natural predators. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sweet place. But yeah, I mean, it's funny when, when any of us, particularly if you watch zombie TV shows, it's easy to get into that frame of mind where you start to do almost game theory analysis of each choice. You know, what's going to, it's almost like a weird consumer choice. Like, do I get the electric car or the gas car? Do I get the the, the you know, oil furnace or a, a steam system? You know, do I build my shelter in, in New Zealand or in Alaska, depending on, you know, what's going to melt when? Yes. Yeah, like, do I, do I eat Fido now or do I try to bring him with me because I need a companion? It's, it's a messed up yeah. thing to think about. But I like that you, I like that you talk about that and that that's something that you get into, not specifically that this is something you want to talk about, but more what the hell is happening with society where people are having these backroom conversations? Yeah. I mean, the strange thing is, I guess they're still, they look at, if they get a smart person in the room, they they are still thinking of us as being able to help them position themselves for the inevitable future, rather than that we could actually help them create the future that they want to see. You know, when I think back even to, you know, the evil corporations of the yesteryear, you know, when you look at, say, a, a General Motors, when they they looked at America and said, look, there's no roads, you know, <laughs> there's no appetite for cars, people are perfectly happy getting on a streetcar to go home at night, we're going to have to really screw this place up 
we're going to have to turn things around. So, all right, let's get our CEO installed as the Secretary of Defense and, and create a justification that we need to be able to move the military around the country. So that's why we're going to get roads. Let's get in with the urban planners and create suburbs that are going to require people to use automobiles to get from home to work. Let's buy the streetcar company so that we can decommission them and then make cars necessary. When, when Not that it was a positive vision, but they looked at the future as something that they could have an impact on, that we could change the world to accommodate what we want. And the the folks that I'm meeting and speaking with today, these, you know, uh, these billionaires don't look at the future that way. They really think, you know, unimaginable, unimaginably about, about it. Can I get a spaceship to get away from it? Can I uh, uh, get a, a shelter to get under it? Can I have robots to protect me from the mobs? As if the, the future is set in stone, that the disaster is coming no matter what, and I have to just insulate myself from it. And you see the dichotomy because you have that with certain billionaires, at least off the record. But then you also have the flip side of, I mean, we essentially have Bezos and Musk in a pissing contest to see who can get to space first and who can make a bigger impact on the world. You see guys like Bill Gates saying, screw it, what the hell is all this money for? We might as well try to save the world somehow. What What is the direction you see us headed? Do you see that as a positive or a negative, this extreme wealth and then certain individuals making certain decisions around it? Well, I mean, I see it as a negative. Uh, the irony here is that people think, oh, if this guy's got $5 billion, so he could just spend it in such a way as to fix the world's problems. And it, it almost as if it's almost as if obliterating the money itself would do more good than trying to spend it. <laughs> it's like, or worse, trying to save it. Now, the, New York, the, the LA Times did a piece, gosh, it must have been a decade ago about the Gates Foundation. And they looked at the impact of the capital itself, just the way the capital is sitting there invested in the S&P index funds and what they're trying to do with the capital. And it was it was as if the the damage that was being done just by investing in by investing this money was greater than the good that they were doing with the interest on the money by deploying it. And the other problem is these these billionaires disconnected from the on the ground reality end up coming up with solutions that don't really solve problems. They look great on paper, like let's give all of these African villagers um, insecticide treated mosquito net so that they won't get malaria at night and put it over their beds. Only these people were poor and they saw the netting and they said, we're going to use these to catch fish so we don't starve. And they ended up polluting their streams with the insecticide that was on these nets. So you end up with these real you know, unintended consequences when you go in almost uh, SimCity style and try to uh, you know, rebuild uh, civilization from the ground up using the money that you extracted from it that you destroyed the civilization in the first place. But isn't that a dead argument then? How do you how do you go forward if the only thing you can see is the past? Well, the way to go forward is instead of trying to extract all this money and then shove it back in there in the ways that you think, you should create business plans that don't require this scorched earth extraction to begin with. You know, if you didn't bankrupt these places to start, you wouldn't have to then figure out how to fix them, you know, how to fix them now. And the long-term solutions for these places are not going to be capital infusions anyway. It's going to be, you know, them being able to, to build from the bottom up in a way that's unencumbered by, you know, the Western corporations that are still, you know, trying to uh, extract what value there is. This is something that comes up comes up a lot on the podcast. How do you do that though? Because it doesn't work in a in a modern capitalist sense. 
because of the way that essentially the incentives are set up. This is why people feel as if things are inevitable, because to change what's happening, you would have to change the paradigm completely. Well, I guess it depends. Depends. It's going to change anyway. <laughs> it's going to change one way or the other. Either it it, it crashes, you know, and, and, and we get the, the rebuilding of society the way we did after the 1929 crash, which is where you see some of the most innovative local currencies and cooperatives, uh, uh, different kinds of farm structures and all got set up until they were either made illegal or forced to fold into the uh, the, the established uh, mechanisms. But, you know, or uh, it's something that doesn't really, it doesn't happen in the industrial scaled way that we're imagining it. So people look at, you know, look at, at solutions the way we look at, you know, an app or a Facebook. It's, okay, this is the solution. Now everyone's going to do, it's going to do this. You know, I think it's a slow incremental series of choices that people make to kind of wind their, to, to, in some sense, to wind their businesses down or to start businesses that don't require growth in order, in order to succeed, you know, to come up with sustainable business plans, take less money, promise less return. Look at, uh, speaking of New Zealand, look at the companies that Inspiral is trying to start where they're, you know, taking, they're taking, you know, debt instruments instead of um, uh, giving shares or getting shares that don't go up in value, shares that only get dividends. And if you start to have investors buying shares that only have dividends, then they're going to look at the tax code and say, well, wait a minute, we're being punished by having to pay high tax on dividends and low tax on capital gains. Maybe we want to reverse that. You know, and once you start looking at tinkering with little things like that, you get a whole different business landscape. So it's not, I don't feel like it's insurmountable. It's just, you know, currently, you know, uh, sort of unimaginable. But I think you go in, you go in with strategic, non-dramatic high leverage points, like trying to, a simple one is just reversing the uh, the, the tax code on, on dividends and capital gains so that people don't want their stock to go up. They want their stock to earn them money as it goes. And then all of a sudden, companies are no longer burdened with growth. So then they don't have to be as extractive. They don't have to be as competitive. You know, then they start looking at what are we providing? How much are we making on it? Stuff like that. Actual fundamentals, essentially. Yeah, the way business used to be. What they now call bootstrapping a business as if it's, you know, it's based on on, on the, the Baron von Munchausen myth that he could lift himself up by his own bootstraps. Bootstrapping a business, which Wall Street tries to make sound like some weird, magical, insane, impossible thing. Bootstrapping your business just means growing your business with the revenue. So in other words, it's actually the real way business is done. You sell some stuff, you make a profit, you use that to buy more stuff, <laughs> you make a profit on that and you grow slowly based on your ability to sell stuff, not by taking in some massive amount of, of uh, external investment. But is that possible when you have to play against these aggregators? We've got a SoftBank vision fund with $100 billion that basically says, we're just going to pour money into someone else to kill you. It is tricky, isn't it? You know, so it's what it's what finally brought down uh, Meetup.com. You know, that was one of the few companies that I was uh, an advisor of. So, you know, Meetup.com was a company that, that the idea was you you go online, but in order to find other people that are interested in something that you are interested in, and then you go have a meeting in real space. And the insight was, you know, that, that we had in the late '90s was let's use the internet to get people offline rather than to end people online. It's a facilitator of, of connection. And Scott Hefferman, who started it, he had already done the dot 
dot-com thing with an advertising company. He didn't want to grow a company. He wanted to, or at least he wanted to grow a company, grow a company naturally, not have investors that he has to pay back and all that. And he was doing all right. And the company was doing what it does. And then Facebook starts mumbling that, oh, we're going to have, we're just going to add meetup functionality to Facebook and it's just going to wipe you off the map. I mean, so he got to the place where then he had to go sell to WeWork. And WeWork is another one of these, who knows what WeWork is. WeWork is, is you know, it's like an Amazon that's using physical reality as its vertical. <laughs> until, <laughs> until the real estate market crashes in the next two to five years. We'll see, right. And now people are saying that WeWork might be too big to fail. You know, that the, that the banking industry might just keep them afloat even if the real estate market crashes because they own so much or they, they've got so much, uh, so many leases. But yeah, that'll be an interesting one uh, to play with. But but you're you're right. I mean, and, and it's a problem. I mean, I do my Team Human podcast, and the most common email I'm getting is from people who are running small businesses, trying to run them sustainably. As a, a woman who's got a a sourdough bakery in Vermont, and she doesn't want to grow, but she's working as fast as she can with as many employees as she can as she can manage at once. You know, and it's 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 interesting that that the the economic ecosystem, you know, it's set up in such a way that if you're not growing, you're dying. You know, and that's that's not how nature works. You know, things reach maturity and then they stay at that size. And it's something that our, our market doesn't wanna that doesn't want to allow right now. I mean, the the only ways to to get out of that are to you know to to achieve certain kinds of local customer loyalty to uh, help people understand the sort of the local multiplier effects of currency and how they move through a town to try to enlist uh, credit unions and educating people on why it's better to try to source things you know from within their network rather than from outside it. It's it's a uh, uh, it's hard to tell people, oh yeah, the price might be lower at Walmart, but the cost is going to be higher, you know, because that day when they've got this much money from their crappy job and they got to buy food and underwear, you know, that getting it from slave labor through Walmart is going to be a, an easier, quicker fix than, you know, going to ye underwear maker. <laughs> In your in your town town square. See, but educating the consumer is never it's never really sustainable because it's it's always so much extra effort that that's the thing you want to try to avoid having to do if at all possible. Is this something that has to be yeah. government governmentally mandated? Like I could see a China trying to pull off something like this and being able to because they have that centralized government. Well, but, but they all yeah, but they also it's interesting though they also have a certain amount of consumer education there where you know they were using shame corporations that were violating uh, pollution regulations. And you know when it is true when you when you shame a company and then tell everyone in your country don't buy from these people this week because they broke a rule. Yeah, it does. Uh, it does have it does have more of an effect. But the the trick with letting government do it right now is that you know the government is is populated by thugs right now who don't really have long term interest. It's like going to you know Tony Soprano and asking, and he's got even shorter term concerns than 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 normal government would. I do think we're at a place where we can't treat our citizens, we can't treat people as stupid masses anymore, that their, uh, their choices do matter, that the way, they, the way they organize and the way they think, you know, either that or what you're saying is then, then end democracy. Let's move into some kind of a benevolent fascist state with sort of fascist climatologists <laughs> and fascist uh, 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 economic 
a, a egalitarians uh, create a more a more just society. I don't know that I don't know that that's how it works. What about a randomized democracy? It would certainly be better than what we have. I mean, just pick Joe from the phone book. You just pick a name to be lot, president. Just 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 <laughs> just lottery system the whole thing. It couldn't be worse than it is. You would think not. At least you'd get some some interesting people. Um, yeah, I mean, I did. I, I wrote this piece about about it on Medium. I had lunch with a, a, a bunch of people, and one of them was this former Secretary of State, and uh, they were kind of joking with me. But they said, "Oh, Rushkoff, have you finally accepted that the experiment of democracy has been proven a failure?" <laughs> and this was before Trump was elected. It was more, you know, that in the era of of, of you know reality TV and Fox News, and that our population was proving uh, too poorly informed to exercise democracy, to, to intelligently vote. You know, and in some ways, you know, I hate to say it, in some ways they're, they're right. You know, if we are going to raise ourselves and our kids on a diet of, you know, inane media and, and not really teach critical thinking, you know, even in, in school, we're teaching, you know, more memorization than we are analysis. If people don't have those basic abilities, it's tricky. And, you know, that's what uh, one of the things I wrote about in the new book in, in Team Human is the way education is reversed from this compensation for a, a work of life, a, a, a life of doing work to a an extension of work, where now we think of education as job training and you know, principals of schools and presidents of colleges go to corporations to ask, what skills do you need? How should we train our students to be better workers for your company? That's not what education was for. That's what training is for. That's the cost of the, the corporation's cost. Education was to make us thinking adults. It was so that the coal miner could go home and read a novel after his day in the mine so that he could vote intelligently, not so that he'd be a better coal miner, but so that he'd have, still have dignity as a human being. Well, he doesn't have to read anymore. The Kardashians are on TV, so we're all good. But right, there you go, though. There you go. He doesn't need it anymore. How do we How do we deal with that going forward? Because I think it is incredibly difficult. You, I think you see a splitting of society between... Uh, you could kind of split it along the have and have not lines, but we have people that are focused on learning and improving themselves in some ways, and another group that's just falling compliant completely, becoming sheep that are, are stuck in a paradigm they can't escape and devolving would really be a good word for it it would be it would be a mean word to use but i think it would be a, i think it would be accurate yeah but it's easy i mean and it's not i mean just to be clear it's not a left right divide that you're no, talking no. about oh, it's not you a left right divide <laughs> right because there are there are lefties who are just as you know s s stuck in their ways and reactionary and screechy and unthinking at this point as 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 righties and it's 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 troubling. I mean, that's why I'm thinking the the and it, I know it sounds slow and meticulous, but people have to reorient to sort of their basic humanness, their their basic sensibilities. They they're afraid of each other. They don't know how to establish rapport and look in each other's eyes and and have uh, uh, experiences. So if they're that afraid, you know, if they're that they're not, I don't think they're afraid. I think they're distracted. So I, I right. you, well, it, what is the state of distraction? I mean, and then you look at the professional distractors. They're good. Yeah, you know, and what are they doing? They're they're using exploits. They're using social exploits and and painstakingly evolved mechanism for uh, social coherence and leveraging them or hacking them in order to get our attention. And that's usually by convincing us there's some kind of a threat. You know, they're 
they are uh, uh, stimulating the, our obsessive loops and our fear loops in order to, to look over here. There's, you know, there's, I don't know what this browser is doing here. There's a, a red, because uh, uh, we're connected through Hangouts, there's a little red number nine on something up there. Putin, you know, Putin's coming for you. We said well, something right. we're not but supposed little to. little red number nine. Yeah, but it's like some list. You know, I was at one of those uh, uh, O'Reilly boot camp things. It's like a gathering of technologists. And one of the guys was there who had developed the, the streak feature on Snapchat. And he was talking to me, oh, Doug, I'm feeling so bad about this now that I see the way it's being used. And now I'm going to dedicate my life to, you know, helping people and resist these. You know, it's like, dude, a little late now. But but what they'll readily admit is that they're using, you know, the, the everything they learn at BJ Fogg's Captology Laboratory at Stanford and how to trigger these Pavlovian impulses to get people to pay attention and touch their little screens. But see, it's, I feel like it's like cyber security or warfare it's much easier to play offense than it is to play defense so the defense will always lag will always lag while we're in their space i know and i still i still feel like they don't yet own reality i mean we work is trying to buy reality at this point but they don't own the physical world so if every time and it's funny i used to talk about this even when i was a much you know uh, uh, more optimistic web enthusiast you know even in the late 90s i used to tell people remember when you're going online that you're going online that now you're not on your home turf that all of the defense mechanisms that you've developed all the critical filters everything all those things don't necessarily function in this other space you know, and it was easier, I think, when people had the experience of going online. You know, you would log on to your computer, you would plug it into the modem and go on to the internet. So you did have this, there was this ritual that sort of separated real life from cyberspace. You know, and now that you're walking around with the phone on and people are texting you, it, it feels as if that's part of your life, that that's your real life. And in some ways it is. Your wife texts you, you text the wrong thing back, that's real. <laughs> that's gonna that's gonna change something but you can't you you've got to uh I believe anyway that that our physical existence our our, our real world existence has to uh, take precedence over the virtual one because the virtual one is taking place on a landscape that is being sounds like conspiracy theory but I don't mean it that way it's it's a landscape that is consciously designed to disempower you and to extract value from you as cash or data. I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. I think it's just the direction of incentives. It's like gravity. It gets pulled, right. it gets pulled that way because that's how the incentives are structured. Right. That's how certain incentives are structured. And But you haven't been incentivized that way. I haven't. So what's wrong with us? I think we both have. I think if you look at people, though, I, I firmly believe 80-20 applies across almost everything. Right. And I would I would bet 20% of people are motivated and focused enough to overcome what the 80, other 80% can't. Right. But the interesting thing is that the 20% of, let's say the 20% of us who see this and who don't want to be manipulated by it and who would choose to disrupt all this disruption. Right now, we're not as powerful as <laughs> the other guys. I mean, the, 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 just the fact that Jeff Bezos is more than happy to sell our books or serve our, our media demonstrates how utterly unthreatened he is by any of it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I feel like it's a slippery slope. It's like, it's like a book. If you're reading a good book, the chapter or the Netflix episode or whatever it is, it always ends with that cliffhanger that you can't escape. I feel like we're living in a 
world where it's cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger. And they're not actually cliffhangers, but it feels like it is. So people are pulled along on something. They feel like they are, they they almost physically can't escape. Right. How do we how, weird, how do we change but, that? Well, I mean, I think it's by spending more time with people in real context. You know, uh, uh, but you can't force it. You can't mandate it. No, but you, it's sexier. It's more fun. You can make it more attractive. But but how do we? You don't do it on the mass level. Yeah, you, know, you do it on the local level. I mean, that's part of why I'm thinking of of Team Human is maybe my last book because books are still there. They're they were the opening salvo of the industrial age. You know, the first mass item really was the Gutenberg printed book, the first mass produced thing on 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 certainly first mass produced medium. And uh, I'm I'm thinking that that if I'm really going to practice what I preach, I should be doing you know local theater, <laughs> you know, really just and 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 try to make a go of it and do the teaching I'm teaching at a city college, you know, which is you know it's both being a university professor but also being something of a social worker when you know you've got kids who are you know coming from the shelter to take their class, you know, the, the homeless shelter to take their class in propaganda that afternoon. So um, you know I'm thinking it's that it's it's the real world stuff. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people who write to me, they're like, oh, I want to create the website that organizes people who are going to do this, or I want to create a new platform that allows the organization of blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking that's, you know, that's as foolish as, oh, I want to create electric cars so that we don't use as much oil. It's like, no, no, no. We should think of something other than cars. You know, it's like, um, so I'm I'm thinking that that one great solution is to is to localize as much as possible, you know, and to not buy into the the fiction that, you know, these cheaper mass-produced things and experiences are actually more efficient in some way. What do you think about these intellectual dark web guys? You've got Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, Eric Weinstein. I feel like you could fit in that crowd. Really? That's interesting. But I mean, I like transgender people and stuff though. And I, I don't I don't I, judge. I think I think that crowd gets a bad rap because people listen to what the headlines say. Typically the headlines right. are inflammatory. I think if you actually got involved in what was it, it's more or less questioning mass market questioning how things are currently done because that's more or less what you want yeah, to do yeah I, i'm a questioner and all that i'm just uh, i'm really keen on not judging other people's experiences if i haven't walked in their shoes and where i've gotten hung up i mean i tried to have a couple of dark web people on uh on my Team Human podcast, and where I get hung up and why I ultimately don't air them is, you know, so I'm talking with one, and then he starts talking about how um, he doesn't believe the statistics that um, young black men are arrested more than white men, or if they are, it's because they're uh, speaking, not speaking and acting appropriately, you know. And then it's like, oh, I don't know if I can go there, um, or. Another one was talking about how this is an interesting idea. He was saying that the industrial age and mechanization allowed women to do the jobs that used to be men's jobs. And this has alienated them from their own biology. So now men's and women's sexual roles and gender roles and social roles are all screwed up because women are doing work that they're not biologically suited for because they have machines to do it with. And I just like, that's not 
a conversation I'm really prepared to have. Yeah, that's that's a little <laughs> weird. I do know if you look at like the most equal equal countries on earth, like Nor like Norway, the ones that have the best economic situation, you do actually see a bit of dichotomy in terms of the role, in terms of what people generally um, move to in terms of work. But I just thought it was interesting. Basically, not necessarily them, but what they're doing is they each have relatively large audiences at this point, and they're going around different parts of the world, essentially giving 5,000, 10,000 person talks and debates between each other just just to get topics and ideas out there. It's a different different local way of doing it. It is. I just wonder how much of it, you know, sometimes I just feel like, I don't know, what issues do we want to bring attention to now? You know, and so I look at like a, a another kind of dark web, say, would be the the folks I'm speaking with who think that the uh, Russia Gate is overblown, that the that the left is making a huge tactical error by focusing all of its wrath on, or too much of its wrath on, the idea that Russia intervention took the election away, and where where that's not where Russia really isn't the boogeyman here. You know, even if they're bad, that they're a, a relatively small economy, a nearly bankrupt country. And sure, they've been sending out Twitter to the world like everyone does, you know, doing whatever propaganda they can. But that, you know, that all of our focus on that is distracting us from much bigger and realer uh, and realer problems. And that, you know, Mueller, whoever, is not going to come through like the Calvary with some smoking gun that makes the Trump phenomenon go away. That it's that it's not Russia. It's something else is happening here. But those aren't mutually exclusive. So I would say that I would say if you look at the left, they are focusing way too much on this because you can't just get angry about someone else and have that be your platform. It's not a platform. You've got to have <laughs> something. You've got to actually stand for something. Otherwise, right. you, fall, you fall for everything. It's the old quote. But at the same time, it is a major problem what's happening there. But I think, yeah, if you don't if you don't address the underlying problems, which are clearly happening, then you have a larger problem that it boils over. It's kind of like stirring the soup, but for forgetting to turn off the the Right. But but I guess what I'm saying is that you can end up in these, you know, could do these talks around the country about, you know, certain kinds of issues. But I feel like I feel like we're in an in an all hands on deck moment now. And I don't know that the, you know, the social justice frame of the gender departments at East Coast universities. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all bullshit. It doesn't matter. Right. Who cares? You know, let them teach what they're going to teach or study what they're going to. Don't go into that. Do something else. I mean, I took a gosh, I took a feminism course back in the ancient days when I was in in college in uh, 1980. I took the intro to women's studies. or I was the only guy in the class, which was cool in itself. And it was in their new building. They had a new women's studies building. But they taught me, this isn't taught anymore. They taught me that um, gender wasn't real. That they were. That this was this moment. There was a kind of feminism, and it was a period that gender is a social construction, and that a baby is not a boy or a girl until the doctor says it's a boy. Before then, it's just a baby with a, a pipish or a baby with a, a, a whatever the Yiddish is for for what my grandmother called Virginia. Um, that. <laughs> And that gender then is a social construction that happens after, you know, so then I'm thinking that, you know, that's my little 19 year old, whatever I was. And then um, I found out that, well, that's not true. That was a, it was a branch, but you know, it's like, but it, I survived, you know, whether it was. <laughs> <laughs> when I was taught was right or wrong. So I guess the thing I'm 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 just concerned about is there's so much attention now going to uh, it's what used to happen on the well or on Usenet 
in the there'd be a discussion. This is back in the early days of the net when we had a text on the internet. There'd be a discussion, and then the discussion would go meta, and it would be about the terms of the discussion or who's allowed to argue this way and the way you're arguing is wrong. And once it got there, it was like kind of who cares. And then you get into what was called Godwin's law, and then someone calls someone else a Nazi, and then <laughs> and, and, and that's when the professors get involved because suddenly it becomes interesting for them. Yeah, I guess you know, and then it's over. And I, so there's so much argument now about the terms of the argument or whose speech is being repressed and, you know, who's gotten deplatformed by friggin' YouTube or something. I don't know. It's uh, um, People are whining about the details. What are the big problems that you see? Big problems is uh, um, we're ending lots of species. You know, we're a lot of species. We're just killing them. We're the, the, I, I, I guess it's a controversial belief now. I believe that climate change is real and represents a genuine threat to many populations and potentially everybody uh, because of the way that um, we're, we're, I don't think we realized industrial industrialization would, would go this fast. I mean, in our lifetime, when you think about all the shipping containers and mining companies and the expansion really got mechanized in a way that was unimaginable in the 40s or 50s. It just, it happened. And uh, I, I think we've got, we've got to look at you know, the way that we feed and house and energize ourselves. You know, on the most basic level, in order to keep um, our species and as many others, you know, going, and to, to keep the uh, the climate that we're in within within a range that's suitable for our civilization. And the fact that for some people that's remotely debatable question is in and of itself a big problem. Yeah, I mean, as I see it, I think yeah. I think as everyone at least should see it. And if you don't see it as that, just look into the science a little bit more, guys, and make sure that you're reading a credible website because if you are, right. the science is very very straightforward. Right. At the same time, though, you know, then it's tricky. So then um, you look at something like uh, vaccine science, right? And I know rationally that vaccines are good for the herd. You know, they really are. They, they, we'd have smallpox or something were it not for vaccines. At the same time, there, I, I've worked with medical professionals who have been treating people who had uh, vaccine issues. And I know they're super rare, but they're real enough that there's funds to help care for these people. And the, the syndromes they get are are real. You know, the various autoimmune diseases that are associated with certain combinations of vaccines done on certain people at certain times in their lives. And the, the refusal, I guess, to entertain some of this um, doesn't assuage those who are concerned. It just magnifies. It magnifies their questioning, and th- and that kind of treatment, I think, then is part of what uh, what what they feel justifies their questioning of anything scientific. And that's a very dangerous place to be. It's a really dangerous place to be. So this is a bit of a transition, but throwing rocks at the Google bus. What happened here in terms of what happened and then in terms of why you decided to write a book about it? Um, well, in real life, what happened was, you know, Google, who were the two Stanford kids who came up with an algorithm in their dorm room to take down Yahoo and the evil top down corporatization of the web ended up turning into the biggest corporate behemoth uh, the web had ever seen, you know, and um, and where they operated was becoming unlivable for the people who lived there. So they were paying, you know, great in a certain way. They were paying the developers who came out there 
to work for them. They were paying them great money. And all the rents went up in San Francisco and around there. And the people who had lived there for 50 or 100 years couldn't afford to live there anymore. So San Francisco ended up serving as a kind of a backdrop or a, like a disney backdrop for Google employees to feel like they were living somewhere cool, but everyone who actually lived there had to leave. And Google would then started using, and they meant well, you know, they started to use these buses to transport their workers from San Francisco down to the mothership in, in Mountain View or wherever they are. And um, they were using public bus stops to bring them there. And they became this real symbol of this kind of foreign invasion. So people started to protest at the bus stops, protesting against the uh, gentrification, because it turned out that if you lived within walking distance of a bus stop, your rent was even 30% higher than it was outside those areas. So it was really, uh, it was upsetting, this kind of hyper gentrification of the neighborhood. And um, then in Oakland, someone actually threw a rock at one of the Google buses and broke their window. And I was getting all these texts that morning saying, yay, look what happened. You know, Doug, aren't you happy about this? And I'm like, I'm not happy about people throwing a rock. I know people on that bus, you know, and they're just programmers trying to make, you know, trying to make enough money before they get burned out you know, by, by Google to, to, to live their lives. So it, it's, it's, you know, whose fault is it? You know, in the end, and that was why I wanted to then write this book, you know, how did this happen? You know, is it the CEO's fault? Well, the CEO is just answering to the shareholders who want their shares to grow. Is it the shareholder's fault? Well, the shareholders are some of us who have a 401k plan or something at work where we want our S&P fund to go up so that we can retire. So, you know, we're all part of this destructive uh, cycle. And I wrote the book to really look at where did this come from and and what can we do instead? You know, how can we move from a growth-based extractive economy that, that really, you know, kicks into a new gear when it's uh, uh, being driven by digital companies and digital stock rather than the old sort of, you know, uh, oil companies that, that had a slower, they had a slower extraction rate. And, you know, so what do we do and how do we... And how do we flip it? So, you know, it's a, it's a book where I really go all the way back to the, the earliest corporations and show really how our currency system is like an operating system and corporations are like the software running on that system. And then how could we change the operating system to be more, more friendly to real people and places? You know, get back to that sort of Adam Smith style economics where you favor, you know, local economics over foreign and, and small business over large in order to empower real people and places. You know, he was the one who argued that you've got to have, you know, three factors of production, land, labor, and capital. And right now in the digital economy, capital is the only one with a seat at the table. It's the venture capitalists who say what happens. The land, the place where we do stuff, that's destroyed. The labor has no voice either. That's why I was really happy when, um, you know, 10,000 Google workers walked out, you know, based on the companies, uh, they were going to make a version of the browser, I think, that would uh, work in, in China, you know, and censor all the stuff that China wanted censored. And people who were working at the company said, no, we don't want to be, we don't want to be making that. And just for, you know, for once for labor to realize, oh, we're actually the ones creating the value here. Um, is a, it's an important shift. What do you think about Eric Reese's push for a long-term stock exchange? Something that instead of trading every freaking microsecond, traded it every quarter or had a longer term horizon? It's a good start. I mean, a long-term stock exchange, it really, uh, the algorithms don't have much to do on that. You know, they, it 
kind of kills the whole high frequency. Uh, but it allows, you, it allows you to think longer term as well. Right. I mean, a quarter is not really long term. A year but you could you could term. you could set the terms as, yeah. long, as you want it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's better. I mean, it's why uh, uh, I think Unilever decided they're not going to give quarterly reports anymore because they didn't want to be beholden to that. And it was great. The CEO he did some interview. I forgot some awful you know Wall Street Journal kind of place interviewed him, and they said, well, "Aren't you going to lose?" shareholders when you, you stop doing uh, quarterly reports. He said, yeah, we'll lose some shareholders, but we'll get other ones. And I think that's a good, uh, you know, I think that these kinds of, of structural changes to markets are more promising than, you know, most of what's out there. There's these, you know, if you want to be a socially conscious investor, they have these mutual funds you can buy that are kind of like filtered. So you buy a mutual fund, but, you know, gun manufacturers and, and cigarette smoking places, you know, those are are filtered out, but you're still just buying into the same old into the same old problem. You know, just because the company's making toys instead of guns doesn't mean it's not part of the the, the extractive economy. So I do like uh, I do like a long term stock exchange as as at least the 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 first of what are hopefully many you know structural modifications or alternatives for people. You know, I still don't know if stock. You know, I'm into employee ownership and platform cooperatives, and you know, what would Uber have been like if it was owned by the drivers instead of these shareholders and you know or or you know looking at how do you how do you teach and a lot of them understand now how do you teach young developers not to go for a high valuation but to go for a low valuation so they don't have to pay back as much money you know it's it's retraining the way they think but once you can sort of show them the math and the outcome you know a lot of them go oh i get it i want a low valuation <laughs> it's just they're babies they're college dropouts who program some cool thing and then some guy you know from sequoia capital wearing a fancy cashmere sweater just tells them this is how it's going to be and that's what kills many a company blockchain uh, i mean yeah. i wish the problem were just as easy as having a better ledger you know i don't look at the problem i don't think the problem is that we're not accounting for enough you know i'm i'm if anything i'm pushing the other way uh, uh not anti-blockchain but to get more things off the books you're not on the books you know there's this i felt like there's almost a techno utopian vision that once we're able to compensate joe for his decision to get out on the left side of the bed rather than the right side of the bed because that data is of value to the certa company when they're developing a mattress to see you know it's like dude you can't just just stop already so i don't know i just feel like there's this uh and i get it there's this it's utopianism. People it think is. people think there's a solution. There is, and that somehow more data is going to do that. I mean, yeah. If I would rather live in a world where we trust our banks to not to fix the books than one where I need a a uh, a blockchain in order to have trust, or I'd rather have uh, trust in the people I'm um, exchanging with. I'm so sure. I mean, blockchain in terms of if it's going to end up being a more efficient way to do an Excel spreadsheet spreadsheet and to have all these contracts work and to do rights management. I mean, that'd be great. That'd be great. If I want to, you know, put a picture on my website and I can't even figure out who to pay or what to do, and I could just drop it in a search engine and it's got this blockchain and they say, here, you give 
0.03 Ethereum to Taylor Swift, and you can use this picture of her hand. You know, okay, great, done. You know, that's that's fine. You know, we, so we are having pro- we are having real problems with the rights management of digital assets. You know, there there's there's our cases for it, or you know, the tracking of soybeans to make sure they're organic or whatever it is. You know, sure. You know, gigazint, as Grandma would say. You know, go in good health, but. Um, is it? Is it? Do I see it as a solution for our our economic inequality woes? No. What about forced ownership by employees? So we had a set percentage of a company that had to be owned by employees, just governmentally mandated. If you want to have a U.S. corporation, if you want to have a Singapore corporation, whatever country, then twenty five percent, ten percent, et cetera, has to be owned by the employees. Well, if you do do a few trials and see what that does, you know the, the problem with doing things with rules is people figure out how to game them so friggin' fast. You know, I was just talking to my my cousin who's actually a, a Trump supporter guy out in uh, Virginia, and um, he said, "Look, the government did this thing, the uh, government of Virginia, where they were they gave um, kickbacks and subsidies to anybody who provided renewable resources." as opposed to extractive ones. And they classified uh, lumber as a renewable resource. So this guy clear cut all these forests with bulldozers, you know, just wrecked them all to get the subsidy money from the government. And I was like, oh, that wasn't really what the, <laughs> the intention. It's like, G- this. it's like GDPR. Yeah, you just kind of, right. It makes these mistakes. So yeah, I love employee ownership, but I'd rather people just start employee-owned companies. I think one of the big problems you have, and one of the differences I see when I talk to liberals and conservatives is how they view specific versus general examples. Hmm. So in my experience, if uh, if my experience, Republicans, conservatives are much more focused on a specific thing. This guy took advantage of this right. healthcare thing. This guy took advantage of whatever it was. Whereas right. if you're, I was on the kibbutz yeah. and these people, they didn't work. So I left the kibbutz and now I'm a Republican. Right. Exa- exactly. <laughs> versus saying versus looking at a larger scale picture and ignoring the smaller details, which is typically what happens more on the left, on a liberal right. side of things. I don't know if you agree or if there's a way around to that. Yeah. I mean, I I kind of do, but I feel like, um, you know, you can marry those two sensibilities by bringing, you know, higher values to, you know, real world micro interactions. And that's 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 why I, I was you know it's funny I had some meetings right after Trump was elected that's when the left finally was willing to hear from me I mean I'm trying to get meetings with Bernie's people Hillary's people all of them all along to help them with economic policy and I'll, finally after all that they're they're willing to talk to me and what I was telling them was look what we've got to do is initiate programs for mutual aid in Rust Belt communities and all of these places where we think it's those white enemy unemployed whatever show them that all you need for an economy is people with skills and people with needs you put them together you create a way for them to credit and debit and all of a sudden you get mutual aid this is not rocket science and all they wanted was no 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 let's just find ways to make trump look bad to them you know and what i was trying to do is sort of what you're suggesting is that or what you're suggesting to me anyway is people particularly people who don't trust this higher value system of the progressives or of the left. You meet them where they live in real ways that show real differences. Don't tell them what it is. 
don't say this is labor, this is leftism, this is progressive thought, this is, you know, the distributist economy. Just help people. And then as they as they it gets into their blood what it is, they're gonna be naturally attracted to candidates who are promoting and supporting that kind of activity. You know, community supported agriculture doesn't have to be lefty. And Hillary certainly never baked cookies and brought it to anybody. I know I know you're a super busy guy. You've got a lot going on, Douglas. I have a couple last questions that All I'm... right, yeah, because I gotta do a person. Okay, <laughs> that sounds really awkward when you say it that way. <laughs> if only <laughs> two, two last two last if only two last questions. First one, what's your big challenge for yourself in 2019 and for the next 10 years? Well, it sounds awful, but I think the big challenge for me is some ways to get off the global media stage. You know, I've written 20 books and written hundreds of articles. I've, I've, I've said a lot. And what I'm trying to do is use the audience that I've been able to manage to capture. Is that the word for it? The, the platform that I have to give voice to other people. And that's why I'm doing a podcast and having other people on there and, uh, and celebrating what they're doing and trying to get them attention for what, for what they're doing. I want to, uh, uh, you know, pass on the best of what I've figured out to people who can take it uh, to the next stage. I mean, I'm not saying I'm ready to just retire and die. I don't mean that, but I haven't, uh, I feel like I haven't lived enough of my own life. I've spent so much of it writing or so much of it doing one internet-y thing or a media thing or another um, and running from thing to thing to thing. So I want to um, embed myself more in the local community where I live and I want to continue to write, but I want to write from there, from those experiences, kind of from the bottom up rather than this sort of top-down intellectual intellectual place. And I really see this Team Human manifesto as kind of a capstone to all the work I've been doing saying, okay, so here's how we deal with science. Here's how we deal with spirituality. Here's how we deal with money, all from this new uh, sort of reified human perspective. And uh, so, yeah, so that's going to be the challenge for me and learning how to say no, you know, just because some other show wants me on or, you know, to go, okay, you know, just because they want you on doesn't mean you have something worth saying. <laughs> it's just, they need, they need someone on their show. That's a, that's a humble perspective. I think that's super important as well. And yeah. then one last thing, uh, a quote, a call to action or something for listeners you'd want them to take away before you tell them more about you and where to find you. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, my, my main call to action is find the others, you know, and that means start by finding the others who are looking for humans. You know, there's a lot of us out there who are, uh, if you walk around in the streets of New York, everybody's looking in their phones, but every once in a while you make eye contact with someone who isn't. And it's like this weird secret club of people who are staying conscious while everybody else is going in the machine. It's, it feels like it used to when, um, you know, you'd go to a rave party or something. And then the next day you'd be in the bank and like the bank teller is like this girl who was at the rave that night, you know, and you're like, look at you. And she's, oh, I remember you. I remember you. Um, and you have this moment of like, oh, we were, we're in the conspiracy and now we're, uh, uh, now we're in drag of regular, of being regular people. There's that. So find the others and then really find the others. Find the human being in those who seem the most different, most unlike you. You know, get past the fact that they like the wrong presidential candidate or it, that they think they believe weird stuff, you know, and find the the human, the human impulse, the human fears that are fueling their, their distortions and, and be there with them, you know, be there with them and listen, because there's, there's a, uh, there's an underlying logic, or certainly an emotional logic to what everybody's going through. And if we continue to, to, you know, see people as deplorables, uh, you know, then we're, then we're the bad guys. 
then we're screwed. Your podcast is Team Human. Our tagline is a podcast about the future of all of us. And we talked about Doomsday at the beginning of this. Uh, We've got a little bit more control than some people like to give us credit. Where's the best place for people to find you, Douglas? I know you got to run. I guess Rushkoff.com. And check out um, Team Human. It's a book. Uh, It comes out January 22nd of 2019. And and find it, steal it, whatever you want. But read it. It's short and fun and and hopefully um, uh, inspiring and and uh, galvanizing 20 books the man the machine douglas rushkoff thanks <laughs> thanks for coming today thanks for having me this has been fun cheers guys if you want more of the disruptors you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes or go to disruptors.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics cryptocurrency longevity ai space vr and much much more you can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.